Hi, hello again. This is Jay Shapiro. Uh, I'm uh, broadcasting this program in the midst of the holiday of Sukkot, which I think is called in English Tabernacles. And I want to say a couple words about, in general, about the holiday and uh, then a little bit about what happened 50 years ago. The many educational institutions, particularly here in Israel or in Jewish schools outside of Israel, education sort of slacks off between Rosh Hashanah and until after a Sukkot, which is really a period from the first day of the Hebrew month of Tishrei till the 21st day of the month of Tishrei. So you have more or less three weeks when there's really no school or a few days of school that don't amount to much. What is Sukkot? It's a booth. It's a little house you build. Not long ago, the actual sukkah wasn't as prevalent in the United States as it is today. It was very rare that people had Sukkot. And today, it's very common among the even the non-Orthodox community to make Sukkot during this holiday. There's been a lapse in tradition for that uh, but over the years, of the last 20 or 30 years, it's come back pretty strong. It's true that it's very difficult to make Sukkot, particularly if you live in an apartment building. And uh, I know when I was a kid, the Sukkot that I used to see in Brooklyn, primarily in driveways or on uh, uh, fire escapes. So the what is a Sukkot? It's a, it's a fragile, decorated building. And in general, when I was a kid, you could only find them in synagogues. So when people wanted to eat their sukkah meal, they would take their food to the synagogue. Now, now, now newly designed synagogues have a permanent sukkah that simply needed a temporary covering. Uh, the, com- the covering is called schach. There is a... Uh, the Jewish schools in my day had a sukkah. Uh, today, of course, they do also, but there, there are many available in uh, apartment buildings, particularly if most of the people living in an apartment building are people who observe the holiday. The Jewish world has changed. Today, religious families build sukkot and go away on vacation to hotels and other places that have a sukkah. They wouldn't go to a particular hotel that didn't have a, a sukkah. And you don't have to worry about your kid missing school because there is no school. So sukkot are everywhere. The, uh, so the Jewish community has changed over the years. A- another new tradition somebody pointed out is called the sukkah a, 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 super, a sukkah hop is a kid's parade from one home to another, from one sukkah to another, uh, according to your grade or age bracket, when you are treated to a bit of Torah learning, a lot of candy eating. 
I spent Sukkot at my daughter's house in a moshav where she lives called Gimzu, and uh, the, the little kids in our family went out to hop around to other Sukkot, while other kids from other Sukkot came to visit us. We had a pile of candies and goodies ready for them. So the world's changed. Despite the rise in anti-Semitism, in a large number of communities, Jews are no longer afraid to display their Jewishness. When I was a kid, people were afraid to wear a yarmulke, a skull cap. I remember when I once was walking through the uh, University of Pennsylvania campus, I was wearing a skull cap. I was walking with two non-Jewish friends. And a Jewish fellow came up behind me and said, you forgot to take your skull cap off. And I said to him, pretend it's a turban and it won't bother you. Nobody would think of coming up to a Sikh from India and said that he was wearing a turban. But they, Yarmulke, skull caps are white common. Walking down the street, uh, carrying a lulav, and an etrog has become a casual occurrence. The Jewish state, the existence of the state of Israel, has enabled diaspora Jews to follow age-old traditions without embarrassment and even with certain improvements. Uh, for example, uh, uh, in uh, warm climates, in warm climates, it's not unheard of to uh, even put an air conditioner or a fan into your sukkah. In colder climates, like in Northern Europe or in the United States, they often put some kind of temporary heater into the sukkah. I remember one year when I was in the United States, 1980, it snowed on the night of sukkah, something that obviously doesn't happen here in Jerusalem. The uh, the uh, so uh, in Israel, especially in the in the ultra orthodox neighborhoods, the Sukkot are everywhere and anywhere where there's space. The uh, if you took a walk around a neighborhood like Meir Sha'arim here in Jerusalem, you 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 there's still Sukkot are everywhere. It's unbelievable. It's really something to see. The, uh, according to Jewish tradition, by the way, the first person to live in a sukkah was the father of our nation, Abraham. The Book of Jubilee writes that Abraham built Sukkot for himself and the servants in the seventh month, and he was the first to celebrate the festival of Sukkot in the Holy Land. In Genesis 33, Jacob, Abraham's grandson, went to a place called Sukkot, while Esau, his brother, went to the place called Seir. In this case, it was a place where they probably already had a sukkah erected like a campsite. Now, the uh, interest interesting, the word Chag in, uh, in uh, Hebrew means I holiday, but traditionally, Hachag, the holiday, is refers to Sukkot, not to Passover, Pesach, or Shavuot. 
during the Chag, the holiday, there was a massive water celebration took place near the temple in Jerusalem. In the Jerusalem, uh, the Talmud says anyone who has not seen the celebration of the water drawing of Sukkot during their lifetime has simply never seen real celebration. Water was required to be used in the temple, so during the holiday of Sukkot, they went down to the wells near Jerusalem and with and took up the water to be used in the temples, and that was a joyous celebration. And interestingly enough, each night, according to our tradition, Symbolic guests are invited to the sukkah. There are seven guests in total. Abraham, Isaac, and David. Aharon. Uh, I'm trying to remember who the other. There's seven, one for every night. And some communities, a candle is lit on each successive night. An additional candle is added culminating with seven candles, bring light to the sukkah to enhance the comfort of the guests, even in the days before electricity. Almost sounds like Hanukkah. <coughs> At any rate, uh, it's a very happy holiday here in Israel, and we're in the midst of it now, and like everybody else, uh, we'll be out doing various things on Sukkot. We have guests coming to visit us in our sukkah. We go to visit as guests in other sukkot. And here, particularly in Jerusalem, there are all kinds of communal activities and shows uh, doing the sukkah holiday. The, the shows themselves have nothing to do with the holiday, but they take the, the advantages taken of the fact that it's a holiday to have a lot of shows. So uh, this week we intended a, uh, a musical variety show at the Jerusalem Theater, and it was here during the holiday of Sukkot because it's convenient and people are on vacation. So it's a very happy holiday. It's called Zman Simchatenu, the time of our joyousness. And indeed, you know, it's not like Passover, you worry about having chametz, having unleavened bread, and things of that nature. Sukkot is a very relaxed and happy holiday, and even in the Bible it's called Zman Simchatenu, the time of our happiness, which is exactly what it is. Now I want to switch, um, switch subjects very uh, radically. And I want to say a few words. Fifty years ago, right after Sukkot, I went into the uh, Israeli army because the war had broken out on Yom Kippur before Sukkot. The war broke out by surprise, and the South Egyptian forces crossed the Suez Canal completely unexpectedly, and they set up large bridgeheads on the eastern side, of the canal in the Sinai Desert. In the north, Syrian commando forces raided Israeli observation post on Mount Hermon, and uh, they started advancing across the Golan Heights. Israel was attacked on two fronts. The Israeli Air Force suffered many losses, 
primarily from Soviet anti-aircraft missiles. The, the state of Israel was struck by surprise, and uh, it was really a very difficult time. I remember during the Yom Kippur break, I was sitting on the porch, and we watched a number of the rabbis of the local uh, yeshiva in uniform leaving for the war. It was a very, very nerve-wracking time. During the war, and thanks to the determination of the soldiers and commanders, the situation was reversed, reserves were mobilized, and properly armed units moved to the battlegrounds and fought back. In the south, the IDF managed to stop the Egyptian advance further into Sinai and ended up encircling Egypt's third army. Uh, they they, they took floating rafts, crossed the Suez Canal, and invaded Egypt. Uh, so if, it, if not for the Soviet threat of nuclear weapons, the army would have been able to advance quickly and without resistance, probably reaching Cairo, the capital of Egypt. The Soviet threat stopped the army 101 kilometers from the Egyptian capital. That was in the south and the west. On the Syrian front, the army managed to destroy and repel all the Syrian forces, and they took territory not far from the capital of Syria, Damascus. So at the end of the war, the Israeli army was near the Egyptian capital, and the Israeli army was near the Syrian capital. And this is in a war where Israel had been surprised. The thousands were dead and wounded in this war. I lost six students that I was teaching. A high cost, great pain, it turned a defeat during the war's first stages into a situation where the enemy armies were destroyed and large amounts of its territories under Israeli control and a tremendous amount of uh, equipment primarily provided to the Arab forces by the Soviets was, Soviets was captured by Israel I remember after the war, when I did reserve duty, we often found ourselves riding in Soviet-made bus uh, vehicles that had been captured from Syrian and Egyptian forces. From a military point of view, and when you compare the situation at the beginning of the war to the end, among its army, the leadership, and the people, there is no escape in the conclusion that it was a huge victory. It could be argued that it was a greater victory than the Six-Day War back in 1967. This, in the beginning of the Six-Day War, within only a few hours, Israel destroyed the enemy's planes. The air forces of Egypt and Jordan and Syria were, were, were vanquished. The, uh, and uh, they, we conquered Sinai and Judea, Samaria, and the Golan Heights. That was the Six-Day War. The victory in the Yom Kippur War was the main factor to push the president of Egypt, uh, al Sadat, to seek peace with Israel. Because what had happened is Sadat realized that despite the fact that Israel had been caught by surprise, Egypt had managed to cross the Suez Canal on the first day and Israel had to face two fronts that were acting in coordination, 
Israel was able to inflict a strong defeat on both the Egyptians and the Syrians, removing them from the territories they occupied at the beginning of the war. And the Israeli army conquered additional territories far beyond the original territory controlled by Israel. So what happened was that President Anwar Sadat understood that he could not beat the Israeli army and all Arab attempts to conquer and destroy Israel were doomed to failure. So in that, based on that conclusion, two years after that war, Sadat opened a series of secret talks with Israeli with Israel and led to a historic peace agreement in 1979. So the uh, Yom Kippur War, which uh, Israel began at a tremendous disadvantage, Israel was attacked on two fronts. We won the war overwhelmingly, and it really changed the entire course of history in this area of the world, because Sadat, the president of Egypt, realized that Israel could not be beaten. And that was a very important point. Even though they took advantage at the beginning, they crossed into Israeli territory both in the south and in the north, but within a short time, Israel had decisively beaten two strong Arab armies that had been equipped by the Soviet Union. And Israel's victory in that war changed the course of history. There's no two ways about it. By the way, a couple of weeks ago, uh, my wife and, so, and I saw a movie called Ogolda, which describes the events of that war. It's a very good movie, and I highly recommend it. The conclusion of that war and the conclusion drawn by the leaders of the of, of uh, particularly of Egypt, is still valid today, and it should be clearly understood. Only a strong Israel and Israeli victories can bring peace, because in the Middle East, peace is only accepted by those who see that their enemies cannot be beaten. That's the way it is in the Middle East. Once a nation realizes that its enemy cannot be beaten, it will sue for peace. So in a resounding victory, and unfortunately at a cost of many lives, a resounding victory is the only thing that will bring peace in the Middle East. And thank heaven, Israel was able to accomplish that despite a very difficult beginning, which I remember very clearly. It was a, a traumatic time here in Israel, but thank heaven we overcame. And it's brought a tremendous change in the Middle East because the other countries realized they are not going to beat Israel militarily. And that's a very important point. So we won the Yom Kippur War and 
50 years later, we are essentially taking advantage of the fact that we won that war so that we can make peace with our neighbors. So that's what's really important. The 50th anniversary, and it is really meaningful. I'll be back after the break. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I want to touch upon a, a number of uh, topics in this portion of the program. First of all, I want to say a few words about the so-called Israeli occupation of the Palestinian territory. It's very interesting that the Palestinian Authority recently submitted a request to the United Nations to recognize the city of Jericho as a Palestinian heritage site. In its description of the history of the region, the Palestinian Authority's request refers to what they call the time of Israel occupation from 1967 to 1994, unquote. Thus, what the Palestinian Authority has done uh, by saying 1967 to 1994 has acknowledged in writing to the United Nations that Israel's occupation ended in 1994. Now, interestingly enough, the same phrase appears in another Palestinian uh, Authority UN document. In 2008, the Palestinian Authority asked the United Nations to help improve its tax-collecting policies. After a two-year study, the Palestinian Authority's financial ministry and the United Nations. You're back with Jay Shapiro. Uh, in this segment of the program, I want to touch upon a couple items, not related, but I think it's important for the listeners to know. First of all, there are about 9.8 million people living in Israel and the population is expected to reach 10 million by the end of next year. All of this is according to data published by the Central Bureau of Statistics. By the end of 2048, the population is expected to reach 15 million people. I don't know how they make expectations going out as far as 2048, but uh, who knows what could happen that is going to affect immigration or emigration. But apparently people like the Central Bureau of Statistics have some arcane ways of measuring these things. So of the 9.8 million people living in Israel today, 72 73%, which is 7.2 million, are Jews, and another 21%, about 2.1 million, are Arabs. 
gets 7.2 million Jews, 2.1 million Arabs, that's uh, over 20% Arabs, and there's another 549,000 from other sectors. Israel's population grew by about 194,000 people this past year. Now, how, how, where did these numbers come from? 172,000 new babies were born, and about 70,000 people moved to the country, including 66,000 new immigrants. Though many moved abroad, many also returned. Around almost 17,000 people returned to Israel, the uh, about 67,000 entering the country in total. So the, co the population has obviously grown thanks to an increased birth rate. Some 181,193 live births were registered in 2022, averaging between two and three children per woman which is among the highest in the world. Of Israel's fatalities, almost 23% were cancer-related, and almost 10% of national deaths were related to the coronavirus. The nation, by the way, has a rate of 1.7 hospital beds per 1,000 inhabitants, and 4.8 nurses for 1,000 inhabitants. Now, I see these numbers, which I'm uh, passing to the listeners. I don't know how this compares to other countries. However, 80% of Israel's population over the uh, age of 20 report themselves as being in good health when they're asked. By the way, I don't, I'm reading. I'm reading this from the report by the Central Bureau of uh, Statistics, but I don't know who does the asking. Now, uh, between daycare and secondary education, there are one million nine hundred fourteen thousand seven hundred students. Around 1,118,900 are in primary school, 795,800 in secondary school, and 884,600 are in preschool. I don't know how this compares to other countries, but it strikes me as being a nice number. Israel, by the way, is still lacking teachers with only 204,000 teachers in the national system. 180,000 students began grade one in the 2022-23 school year, and approximately 142,000 students graduated high school, which is a almost an 8% increase from years previously. The uh, <coughs> In an address to the nation before Russia shut up, President Isaac Herzog called for a greater engagement in the inclusive, vibrant, and empowering global Jewish dialogue. That was his words. 
it's necessary to overcome and move forward from the challenges Israel and the diaspora Jews faced in the past year. He went on to say, while our differences can be painful, they also point to important, comfortable truth. We all care deeply about our Jewish people and our beloved Jewish and democratic state of Israel. So it's okay to have differences, unquote, from the president of the state of Israel. So that's a nice thought. The report comes up, all these numbers comes out just, just around Russia Shana time. And these are the numbers. And you, you think back to the fact we're about 600,000 Jews living here in 1948 when the state came into building into, into uh, being, and now you have more than 7 million Jews. I think that's a real sign of success. Now I want to go into another topic. Two weeks ago, we marked the 30th anniversary of the signing of the Oslo Accords, which is undoubtedly one of the most colossal strategic errors in the history of Israel. Three decades after Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin and PLO terrorist Yasser Arafat shook hands and in Washington as President Bill Clinton looked on, we can honestly say the smiles have long ago been erased thanks to the disaster brought by this agreement. The, uh, since the legacy of that catastrophe catastrophic capitulation by the Jewish state is still very much with us, it's worth gazing back even briefly at the folly of that that attempt to appease terror with terror with territory. The, the Oslo Agreement was terror terror to be appeased by territory. The the they uh, the, that decision rescued Arafat from political oblivion. Despite his career ordering the hijack of airlines and cruise ships, plotting school massacres, and, and rev, rev, reveling in the murder of innocents, Arafat was granted legitimacy as a partner, a partner by the Israel government thanks to Oslo, a historical mistake. In exchange for promising to make peace, Arafat was subsequently handed the keys to Gaza and Jericho, followed by other cities in Judea and Samaria. He was allowed to bring thousands of terrorists from abroad and was even given arms and ammunition by Israel. Not surprisingly, the aftermath of this turn of events was as bloody and lethal as it was predictable. Now that you think about it, you say, how did our leaders ever do such a thing? Consider the following. In the five years after signing of the Oslo Accords, more Israelis were killed by Palestinian terrorists than in the 15 years before the agreement. A total of 279 men, women, and children were murdered in the half decade following the Oslo Accords, 
where 254 were killed in the 15 years that preceded it. All told, there have been thousands of Israelis murdered and wounded by Palestinian terror in the past three decades, which is what Oslo was ostensibly supposed to prevent. It was a colossal historical error. Instead, it gave birth not to one, but to two hostile Palestinian entities and now uh, that now abut the Jewish state. The Ramallah-based Palestinian Authority, which incites violence, educates youth to murder, pays terrorists handsomely for their actions, that's on one side. And in Gaza, you have a, an area controlled by Hamas, which has fired countless rockets at Israeli towns and cities. In one fell swoop, Oslo emboldened Palestinian terrorists, undermined the Jewish state's deterrent posture, and divided the land and people of Israel. Oslo gave us unprecedented horrors like bus bombing, suicide attacks, kidnapping of soldiers, and the torching of Jewish sites. They gave up plenty of land, did not receive any peace in return. Interesting, it's been pointed out by some people that the Oslo experiment was the diplomatic equivalent of the Titanic, a ship that sank in 1912. It was a grandiose exercise that in hubris it crashed and sank, sending countless innocents to an early grave. Now, until today, Israel continues to suffer from Oslo. And there, it's interesting how all kind of uh, American, in particular, international leaders persist in their prattle about the necessity of a two-state solution and the need to create an independent Palestinian state. These, these people continue to preach that conferring statehood on the Palestinians will put an end to the conflict of, with Israel. They ignore the Palestinian track record of scuffling negotiations, torpedoing attempts by Israeli premiers like Ehud Barak and Ehud Omer to give them virtually, virtually everything they want on a silver platter. They refuse and they continue their terrorism. Those who continue to mouth the mantra of a two-state solution are simply overlooking the obvious lessons that Oslo embodies. Israel must never again give up territory under any circumstance and must certainly not give up territory in exchange for false promises of peace. And all the promises of peace so far have been false, every one of them. We cannot place our security in the hands of others, and no matter what, we must never allow a hostile Palestinian terrorist state to be established in Judea and Samaria, as that would pose a direct threat 
to the future of our country. Oslo, an older principle of Land for Peace, was simply an illusion founded upon the delusion that appeasing terror rather than opposing it was the answer. It was a colossal historical mistake, and those who still speak of a two-state solution are seem to be unaware or choose to be unaware of the history of the last 30 years. But the bottom line is even more different than that. It's not a battle over borders. It has never been a battle over borders. It is a clash of civilizations. That's what it really is, and we have to face it. It is a clash of civilizations, a struggle between the Jewish people who are reclaiming their ancestral homeland and those who oppose our efforts to do so. It's as simple as that. And Israel should make it clear that there has never been a Palestinian state in all of history. There isn't one now, and we should make it clear once and for all that there never will be, because a Palestinian state, which was offered to them 30 years ago, which they didn't themselves didn't pick up, would simply be a terrorist entity. We can see that. 30 years on, we can say with confidence that Oslo and everything it stood for is really dead. It was stillborn. It never came into existence because the terrorists had no intention whatsoever of making any form of peace with Israel. So what we have to do is not try to revive it because it never really existed. It, it was dead at birth. And 30 years later, we still have people talking about a two-state solution, and it is totally meaningless. Anytime any of these diplomats speaks about a two-state solution, he should be asked, how exactly do you envision this two-state solution? They, people seem to, I, I think it was, uh, the, the, it was, uh, it's been quoted by Albert Einstein that the height of folly is to do the same thing over and over again, thinking that you'll reach a different conclusion that you reached in the past. The Oslo Accords were a terrible folly, and many of us here in Israel realize that, and so we are, we are violently opposed to anything that would give any form of sovereignty to the Palestinians because they simply are not interested in making peace with Israel. And I think it's, uh, it's a failure of our uh, foreign <coughs> diplomacy to not let this word get out to the world. All you have to do is look at the history of the last 30 years since the Oslo Accords and it's obvious that it was a mistake. You know, history is marked with a lot of uh, 
famous or infamous mistakes, like the agreement between uh, Hitler and Chamberlain back in uh, 1938. And today, everybody looks back upon it and says, how could they have done anything so stupid? And we are yet to find people who look back at the Oslo Accords and say, how could Israel have done anything so stupid? And I think it's a responsibility of those who are able to to, to uh, spread the word just by repeating and publicizing the last 30 years of history and, with, and, and saying that it was a mistake, showing that it was a mistake, proving that it was a mistake, and now we are in a situation where we have to live with that mistake. And we are doing the best that we can. The Palestinians are not going away. They're here. And they still are intending their leadership to destroy the state of Israel. It is our responsibility to do everything we can to see to it that we are safe and sound. It requires eternal vigilance. But eternal vigilance is the price of liberty for all nations who want to be free. It's particularly true of Israel because we live with an enemy right here next door to us. And so it's very important that we choose leadership that understands the situation and acts accordingly. That's one of the reasons why it's sort of almost embarrassing to read the daily papers and see the quality of leadership that we have, the political leadership. It really is not fitting for a Jewish country after 2,000 years to have this kind of weak leadership. Thank God we have a strong military, we have strong security forces that are led by capable people, and that's why we are safe. It was up to our politicians, we would be in great difficulty. I'll be back after the break. You're back with Jay Shapiro, and uh, I want to call the listeners' attention to a new controversy, controversy that occurred here in Israel. Uh, I didn't even realize it was a controversy until after it was settled and then it was discussed uh, by various commentators. And it has to do with the brand new library, the National Library that was constructed near the uh, Knesset and all, apparently books from all over the various universities are going to be put into this National Library. So, the National Library of Israel has recently become the center of a lot of attention and a lot of news coverage, and uh, this began about a week ago when the National Library unveiled its new logo in anticipation of the inauguration of this very nice new building right near the Knesset. I've gone past there a number of times. It really is an impressive building. Now that it's open, I'll get a chance to go over and see what it looks like uh, inside. 
Now, the the uh, they have a new logo. They introduce this new logo uh, uh, before the inauguration of the new building, and the, the logo's introduction, as I said, started all kind of conversations and arguments. The previous logo featured an open white book, book with blue edges, which connects the library uh, to its role as a nationally owned institution owned by the state of Israel. And uh, so you have blue and white, and it reflects the literary heritage of the Jewish people. Now, the new logo is a very different. It consists of two parallel lines with accompanying text in black set against a white background featuring the phrase National Library of Israel in Hebrew, English, and Arabic, all the same size. Hence, the new logo completely lacks any national symbolism, uh, both in its name and its visual design, including the color scheme. To put it differently, it's an abstract and progressive logo that comes across as sort of cold and devoid of identity and emotion and doesn't have any distinctive national significance. The only postmodern element missing from the logo is a binary language that would comp- com- compromise the integrity of the Hebrew language. It appears that the National Library aimed to appeal to a specific audience and portray their institution with more or less universal image. Uh, in other words, no sense of belonging, uh, no sense of belonging to the national nation of the State of Israel or to its people. It's worth noting, by the way, that the library itself is a state-funded institution that's supported by public resources. Initially, the library attempted to offer various justifications, but when when these explanations were met with public outrage, the library ultimately decided to retract this new logo, which doesn't say anything about the State of Israel, and revert to the old one. This logo effectively conveys the complete narrative while preserving the cultural and national identity of the people, the state of Israel, and the land of Israel. So, a, uh, uh, Omer Dustry, who is a writer and researcher, uh, noted that the incident concerning the logo of the Israel National Library highlights a troubling trend. Why? Because it reveals a situation in which national and state institutions consciously choose to relinquish their national and unique identities in favor of a vague, shapeless, and all-encompassing image driven by a desire to be inclusive. So interesting. The original image was very Israeli. The new image was sort of modern, 
postmodern, I guess you could say. Nothing is really about it. And when protests came, they went back to the old image, which reflects the fact that the library is the National Library of the State of Israel. Now, as uh, I noted, this, this, this is a troubling trend, which is reflected in the content and lectures within universities, which are influenced by progressive ideologies and the struggles surrounding citizenship and history and Bible studies within the education ministry, as well as the practice of government bodies and so forth. All these elements contribute to something which is really bothersome, which is a gradual erosion of the Jewish identity of the state of Israel. They sort of promote a postmodern and progressive uh, discourse uh, at, at the expense of the natural values of the state. Now, we live in an area where displaying the Israeli flag is sometimes unjustly equated with fascism um, the, um, and uh, Zionism and socialism are often labeled as racism. And for example, public prayer on Yom Kippur just a week ago is forbidden in public places in Tel Aviv. So it's unsurprising that the symbols of national institutions are being taken the drain of their national content. We want the flag to represent the state of Israel, and we want our mottos to represent the fact that we are the Jewish state. Making national symbols not national <clears throat> is a new trend that's taking place. So the... Uh, the, the, a lot of people came out against the uh, National Library's new uh, logo, which is sort of abstract and not. It doesn't reflect the fact that it's an Israeli Israeli National Library, and it was uh, this uh, ultimately prompted extensive public pressure. And in the end, the reinstatement of the previous emblem. So there are those who report that this serves as a powerful testament to the Zionist and national fervor that resides within most of the Israeli population. People long for a connection to their roots, to their tradition, to their history. I believe that the majority of people of Israel recognize keenly these conservative values constitute the very bedrock upon which the existence of the Jewish people in the state of Israel in the land of Israel are built. The struggle for Zionism, which began a hundred and some years ago, is still not resolved. In many respects, as we're in the middle of the battle, the citizens of Israel are fully aware of the spiritual and national decline within state institutions, particularly over the last 30 years. And most people are committed to standing up 
that defending the image and character of the state as a Jewish state, democratic state, and with Zionist characteristics. So the struggle over the the National Library emblem is reflective of the struggle that's taking place in Israel where people do not want to see Israel become a modern state with no basis and no roots. So the struggle over the symbol for the National Library is a significant event in the war in that struggle. We want the state of Israel to represent the fact that it is representative of the Jewish state, the Jewish people, and its history. In making things what I guess you would call parva, neither meat nor dairy, is simply not direct the direction in which the state of Israel should go. Our national uh, symbols should represent who we are, the Jewish people with a long history and hopefully a long future. So let our national symbols represent who we are. To make them without this representation is to do away with the very identity of the state of Israel, and that's something we cannot afford. To go on to another topic, uh, it's been reported, I may have mentioned it previously, that on the night of Kol Nidre, Yom Kippur night, people gathered to uh, pray together, people of all walks of life, and people of all brands of religion, if you will, religious, not religious, irreligious, got together for something which is an annual event, saying Kol Nidre together on Yom Kippur night. And it turns out uh, in the center in Tel Aviv where this occurred, that tens of thousands of people were there. People came and disturbed what was happening. In particular, they knocked down that area where a mechitza, a separation, has been had been set up between men and women. A lot of people who go there, uh, Jews who, who believe in the separation of men and women during services, felt that it's okay if everybody wants to sit together, but at least in one section of the area, there should be a mechitza, separation between the men and the women, at least for those who want that. And then this group came and uh, and an act, I guess you could describe best as thuggery. They uh, broke down the the, uh, mechitza, they broke down the separation between men and women. There was a lot of fighting going on. And what should have been the... uh, but the holiest night of the year turned out to be a riot. Very unfortunate here in the Jewish city. It's interesting that after 2,000 years of praying for the return to the land promised to us, that we, we get together and, and fight about uh, how we should, we should commemorate that day. So according to pre- recent press reports, if 40% of Israelis 
are either applying for second passports if eligible to do so or can easily leave for other countries and are considering doing just that. Now, 40%, I think that's an exaggerated number. Even if it's 20%, even if it's 10% of people leaving because they don't like what's going on in Israel, that is simply wrong. What's happened to the the sense of mutual concern for the good and welfare of the people living here? Now, there is no doubt we're going through a very difficult phase with the the government making changes in some of the laws and people coming out against it and so forth. These things happen. It's not the first time there's been something of major importance. If you check out your history, it turns out, look back when the government back in the early 1950s agreed to accept reparations from Germany There were people who were violently opposed to it. They had riots here in Jerusalem. Uh, The leaders of the the riots, like Menachem Begin, who became the head of the Heirut Party, eventually became the prime minister. So there have been difficult times, but people didn't get up and leave the country because of difficulties. And then it's interesting to check with these people who are considering leaving. So it turns out many are expected to go to Cyprus, some to Greece, and believe it or not, many people are said they're leaving for Germany. By the way, Germany has the fastest growing Jewish population in Europe. More amazingly, Berlin the seat of the Nazi government after 1933 is the German city today that has the fastest growing Jewish population. Can, that, can you believe that? Now, we were in Berlin uh, last month, my wife and I, and there are two Chabad houses there in Berlin. It's got a really fast growing Jewish population. Uh, another attractive uh, destination for people who want to leave Israel is uh, the United States. So, uh, it, it, the uh, and Canada, and uh, the uh, one uh, other prime uh, potential desti- destination that people are talking about, believe it is not, is Costa Rica. The uh, I don't know. I don't know why Costa Rica. So we ask ourselves, why are people leaving? Because the present government is intent on making changes to our judicial system that many people believe will somehow weaken our democracy. So what? Governments do not stay in power forever in a democratic country. Does anyone even remember a government that served a full term here in Israel? Laws altered by one government can be replaced by the next government. So the uh, if government does something, is it irreplaceable? Obviously not. Consider this. A country can rightly claim 
yet there is probably not a single piece of electro electrical equipment to use anywhere in the world that has not been invented or improved by technology developed in Israel. A country that hosts 60% of the world's investment in cybersecurity, that's Israel. Israel has found a way to take a remnant of religious life that existed at its inception, 1948, and in 75 years created the largest center of Jewish learning in history, including a library, which I just mentioned previously in this portion of the program. So obviously we are smart enough. We were smart enough to get through 2,000 years of exile. We should be smart enough to solve the challenges that front us today. Life here in Israel, has, we have a high standard of living, most of the population. We can freely travel almost anywhere in the world. The majority of the world's Jews now live in Israel, which has created a dynamic where diaspora Jews could no longer easily thrive as Jews without a productive and buoyant Israel that they, that they rely on. They're, and obviously, you need a place for Jews to go when the world shuts its door. We experienced that in my lifetime. So we're all working and contributing to the success of this society for the last 75 years. The, uh, and this is something to be proud of and to work to, even if there are defects, we work to improve it. So we are already here. We, what we have is not perfect, still needs a lot of work. But in truth, that since the fall of Jerusalem, it is questionable in Jewish history whether there has ever been a better time. So if there are people here who, who want to run away rather than help to continue this success, that's very sad. What do you tell your grandchildren about what we did if we let that happen? The, uh, we owe it to the generations that came before us and those that come after us to work to make this a better place with all its defects. This is the only Jewish state. It's our job to see to it that it succeeds and it improves. It isn't perfect. Nothing is perfect. We are here to try to make it better. Until next time, Jay Shapiro signing off.